And I mention this because it feels to us as right healthcare professionals, um, public health professionals, um, clinicians, these things just have become the norm, right, day to day. You wear your sunscreen if you're in the sun, you give up gloves when you get in the car, um, you wear a helmet, you use a condom if you're practicing safe sex. Um, some other things like sharing your location with a family or friend if you're going somewhere that you're not familiar with or if you're meeting someone that you, you're not familiar with. We're doing harm reduction every single day. For me, that's sharing my location with my mom in case she texts me and I don't answer within three minutes so she doesn't panic. So, right, these things are happening every day. Um, but because these things have become so norm, um, when we talk about substance use reduction, um, harm reduction, um, that just seems like a whole new wave of thought to some people, right? It's like a whole like nuance. And the truth is we're doing this every day. So I encourage you um, when you're talking to your population, whether that's your patients or your clients or your peers, um, to really encourage you to say, no, we've been doing harm reduction across a, a whole bunch of different populations and um, substance use makes no difference. And so the next two slides I borrowed from the New Hampshire Harm Reduction Coalition, which is a really great resource. I encourage you to reach out to them if you ever need um, guidance or if you need presenters or information. They have just got really great resources. So this is how they describe the continuum of substance use, right? So you've got accidents, experimentation, occasional social, um, all the way up to chaotic use. And what happens when we're talking about um, chronic conditions like addiction, we're um, expecting these folks to go from this heavy, chaotic, regular use to abstinence in order to get the services that they need, right? I need to find employment, I need treatment, I need to access X, Y, or Z. And so it's not realistic to ask folks who are in this heavy, chaotic use to say, all right, well, if you want to get what you're trying to get, then you need to stop completely. And so this kind of gives you a better idea of the steps, right, that you need to take if we're talking about a less controlled chronic health condition all the way down to um, a well-controlled chronic health condition, right? So the best example that I like to give people is you're trying to lose weight, right, and you're more up in the, up in the excess, or you've got someone that doesn't eat very healthy, they don't exercise, how realistic is it to say, okay, well, now you're going to be eating a salad every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Oh, and by the way, maybe you'll throw in a 90-minute spin class. Um, and guess what? Ta-da! Like, everything's fixed, and it doesn't work that way. Um, and so we can't expect folks to go from excess all the way to abstinence in one big jump, right? You need to set goals. You need to be realistic. You need to think sustainable, right? You also need to think that some folks might not want to be at abstinence. They might want to be at moderation, or they want might just drink less instead of not drinking at all. Um, so keeping these things in mind um, when we're talking to our patients or our patients. And these are just some general um, SMB harm reduction principles that the New Hampshire Harm Reduction Coalition has set. So um, their practical strategies aimed at reducing negative consequences associated with drug use. Um, it's a social justice movement that respects the rights of people who use drugs. Um, it accepts that drug use is a part of our world and works to minimize harm rather than to ignore or condemn. And understand that drug use is complex with a continuum of behaviors, right? It's not just black and white, you use it or you don't use. Um, and so some uh, ways of doing drugs are safer than others. Um, and it's not judgmental, um, it empowers drug users to share info and support each other. And so these are uh, the strategies that I'll touch on today, so hop right into it. Um, the first is harm reduction education for staff here at DH. Um, and so this feels like the very the most straightforward, right? But it actually is very impactful. So nursing around grounds back in 
um, September, had the New Hampshire Harm Reduction Coalition come in and do a stigma and discrimination uh, training. And so 26, claimed, 26 nurses claimed CMEs, but they actually had a ton more people there. Um, that was just the number that I could get from them. That's how they count their votes. Within population health, we have um, a, sub, a subset of work called Strong Families, Strong Starts, that's led by Holly Gaspar and Hilary Schuler. And they, this is to integrate recovery-friendly pediatric practices within pediatrics. So what they did in fiscal year 19, they had a whole series of trainings that included the science of addiction, trauma-informed care, stigma, and harm reduction. And they had these for DH pediatrics, APD, and Valley Regional. Um, and so they had a really great turnout. They had lots of really great feedback, which I'll try here. So some folks said, my pretest score surprised me at how little I knew and how much need there is for this information. Um, trauma-informed care is an invaluable tool. I gained an increased awareness of possible hidden trauma in individuals, and we need more training for this. So um, that was really exciting here. I, I think that was a win for, um, for all of us, and we're really, or they're really excited to be able to hopefully continue to provide these. Narcan distribution and administration. So we've been doing, Population Health has been doing Narcan distribution trainings, I want to say like close to four or five years now. Um, and so when I go out into the community, I'm either doing like a very brief 10 minute training and I can do them like back to back so we can hit up with folks at different times. Or I can go and do this very formal um, PowerPoint presentation, which I do an overview of the data regionally from the Upper Valley all the way to Greater Sullivan, how to administer Narcan. Um, if I'm teaching uh, folks that are working with um, patients, how to teach lay people to administer Narcan, um, and then I do kind of a why this impacts us as a whole community. Um, and so again, I can tailor this to be like 10 minutes all the way up to 45 minutes, so um, really depends on who I'm talking to, and so um, it's very flexible. So if you ever need that, you can come to me. So when I've worked with um, departments here at uh, DH, it's usually because they're either getting Narcan kits from the state, or from the New Hampshire doorways, which I'll explain in a second, or they're purchasing kits that they want to give the, to the patients for free. So these are kits that aren't going through orders or anything. These are literally just kits that they're handing to their patients. And so um, part of the procedure and the protocols are to get trained and to do the staff trainings, which is what we've done. So we've been able to train at the ED, the OP, we've trained at the Education Treatment Program, we're training the infectious disease nurses today, um, and then we've also um, trained some Dartmouth TDI researchers who are working with um, a population that uses drugs. And so the New Hampshire Doorways Program, is everyone familiar? Do people know? I'll do a quick little one while on it. So New Hampshire Doorways started in, or was launched in January 2019, and its goal was to increase access to treatment. Um, folks that are looking for it. So this is done through regional hubs in the state. So there's, there's nine in the state, I believe. Um, ours is at the addiction treatment program over at the River Mill on Mechanic Street. And so folks can walk in, they can call 211 and get set up with their local hub. Um, and then part of this is also that the doorways have free Narcan kits to give to their patients. Um, anyone that walks in that wants it, they're also able to distribute it to community members or community organizations and providers. And so prior to this, the kits were actually held by the state and given to the regional public health networks that then gave it to me. And so I was doing all these trainings already. So the partnership between us and the doorways has been pretty seamless. Um, and so we've been able to continue to reach a whole bunch of folks in the community and internally. Um, the last thing I'll mention is standing orders. So standing orders are given by the state to pharmacies and they have to apply for it, but it's fairly straightforward. 
um, to be able to dispense Narcan uh, without a prescription. That doesn't mean it's not at a cost, so Narcan kits can go all the way up to like $112 a kit. Um, so if you've got the resources for that, that's great, right? You can walk into any pharmacy and you can get that for free. Um, but it might not be cost-effective for the patients. But I will mention that Dartmouth Dead Truck does have standing orders, um, both Centera and in-house. Um, and then increase awareness of safe language. Um, we do this pretty ongoingly. This isn't like a program that we have, but we are really conscious when we're talking to um, people in the community, people internally about the use of safe language, right? Person first, right? It's not um, opiate um, use, or now I'm getting my words. So. Person first, uh, we're not saying drug user. Um, we're saying a person with uh, a substance use disorder. Um, we don't. We never say addict, junkie. That just makes my skin crawl. Uh, encouraging people that when you hear that, to say, you know, why don't you say this and not that? Um, you don't say uh, stay clean. You can say, you know, they're in recovery. Just really simple things like that. Um, it can make a huge difference. And so, a couple opportunities and challenges here. Um, with the trainings, we've got really great collaboration with our trainers and with the departments receiving the trainings. So I think there is an opportunity to do these more ongoingly and more frequently. Um, and it's really well received. Uh, maybe making these an online module would be helpful. Um, is something that we're thinking about as well. Some challenges, you know, trainer capacity and then also provider capacity to attend these is always going to be um, difficult to work around, right? Not everyone's schedules are going to align. We're not going to be able to, to coordinate with all departments um, and get everyone on the same page. But we can just keep continuing to hosting these and see who can attend and what works best for everyone. Um, but I think the biggest challenge between both of these is, you know, attitude changes and established norms really do take a while to change. It's not going to be a, a one-time event and boom, everyone's changed. Um, and it does take a champion in the department to say, um, to uphold the safe language or, you know, uh, be a lead on coordinating things like that. Um, so I encourage you to find someone, if you're, you know, who, who that is in your department to really lead that. You know, safe language is super easy. It's not a program that you need to implement. It's something that you can do starting today. Um, it does take practice, you know, like anything, but I, I believe in you, you can do it. So. Um, the next is safe prescription disposal. And so um, we do a national prescription take-back day, which is a biannual event. It happens in October and in April, um, which is a collaboration between the Drug Enforcement Agency, local police departments, prevention staff, so our region, that's us, um, and community sites. And what this is, is this increases awareness to the 24-7 drop boxes that exist at most local PDs. So for our region, pretty much all of them have it. Um, and you can go and safely dispose of your medication there. Um, we, what we did in the community for the past two or three years is we were bringing these in-house to senior living facilities where folks might be homebound or they can't get out to their PD. And we saw why I don't bring this to the Aging Resource Center. We literally share a building with them. Um, and that's what we did in April. And so um, we had the police come in. They staffed the event. Um, you know, the, the folks loved it. I mean, they love chatting with the, the policeman. It's the cutest thing in the world. Um, but uh, it was a benefit to not only participants, but everyone that works over on Santerra, because not we work at Santerra, not all of us get a chance to come to the hospital and dispose of our meds at the boxes or can go to the PEs. And so um, we had people from Nobel come down, people from the other Centera come down. It was, it was a really great event for everyone. So the PEs have drop boxes, but we also here have drop boxes um, over in Centera and at the main campus. And they look pretty much just like the ones at the PD. 
Um, they hold about 61 pounds of men, so a, a lot of medication. Um, and they're open to employees and the public. Um, what pharmacy does with them is they um, just seal them and send them out for disposal, which is incineration. Um, and in 2019, they reported they had 31 boxes disposed, or about one every two weeks. So they're really well used. Um, they're reporting that things are going great. So, Deterra bags. Does anyone know what Deterra bag is? I should have some. So Deterra bags are these charcoal activated medication disposal pouches, and it looks like a salad bag. So you tear the top off, it's got a Ziploc in it, you put your medication in, you put some warm water in there, you shake it up, and then you throw it in the trash. And it has, it's a really easy way to safely dispose of your medication. The plastic will also disintegrate within two years, so the plastic is biodegradable. And so, in 2018, Rally New Hampshire, which is RX Abuse Leadership Initiative, um, which was created in support by uh, the, the governor, uh, they released an MOU because they had a ton of funding coming to, to get these bags. And so Freeman said, hey, if you're interested in receiving these bags with an organization, complete this MOU and we'll give you however remaining bags you like. Sounds a lot easier than it is because at the H, you know, you've got to make sure everyone's counseled and everything, you know, is um, checked off. So I worked with council to make sure the MOU was something that we could sign on behalf of the organization. And so Population Health ended up taking in um, 2,000 bags that we use for community events and community pilots. Um, and then we set pharmacy up with 6,000 bags so that they could distribute that to the pharmacies. And so the way that they do it is they distribute one bag for every, or with every acute opioid prescription, but it's not limited to that. So it really depends on what the pharmacist um, wants to do it in the moment. And they've been reporting that patients are really receptive to this, and even for the patients that are like, oh no, I'm okay, like I'll, I'll take one next time, they give them, or they use that opportunity to do a brief um, just education on safe storage, on safe disposal, and that if they do want more bags in the future, they can come to the pharmacy and get those. And so they've distributed 2,000 bags in the last 10 months. Um, included in this is um, the D Hyperthermin Employee Clinic that we also support, and so they've given them bags there as well. A couple of opportunities and challenges here. So, again, National Prescription Take Back Day, we can expand this to other departments, not just the EPA. Center, um, really anyone that's serving a high risk population. Um, the only difficulty with the event is that it needs to be staffed by police. Um, so we, we really work around their schedule and whatever works best for them. Um, the other hiccup that we have is these events are always on a Saturday. Um, doesn't work out great for the organizations that don't have staffing on Saturday, right? So they want to move this to a day of the week event. The issue with that is that we have to do a request to general or to the general attorney to have them cover under liability if we're going to do a, like a Wednesday event um, because the only days that they have covered are the, that national Saturday day. Um, not impossible. We just need like two to three months of lead time, which is a lot of time for folks to really be like, oh yes, like I want an event. Okay, well you've got to think about that like three six months ahead of time, and then we contact the attorney general. So again, we can do it. Just take some time. Um, the drop boxes, obviously these fill a super important need for the people that can't get to the police departments, um, and they are very well used. So currently, um, they don't anticipate expanding the boxes because they are very well used, 
Um, but if they do, the boxes require 24-7 monitoring, um, video surveillance. This is more of an issue in the community when you know, PDs don't have the resources to pay for these. In-house, I think it's fairly straightforward. So, like I mentioned, current needs are met, so um, I think we're good there. Deterra bags, um, definitely an opportunity to give these bags to providers whose patients aren't getting their medications here um, to make sure that they leave with the bag before they go fill it at, you know, Price Shopper or Walgreens and um, make sure they're ready with that. Um, Rally is still distributing the bags, and so if you're interested or if you know a department that's interested, um, I can request them on your behalf, or you can use the MOU that we've already um, cleared with uh, council to, to do that. Um, there's no reporting requirement either with these bags, which is great, which really gives you flexibility to collect whatever it is you want. Um, the only thing is, again, the funding of the bags still is uncertain. They have them right now, but I don't know what will happen in the next year or two, and they haven't really... Um, said what they anticipate as far as continuing the funding for the bags. Um, that being said, the bags are expensive. So if this is working well for you and there's no funding out there to apply for these bags, the bags are about like six dollars a bag if we're getting like the medium size one here. So there's something to consider. Um, support to certain service programs. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing with this has been in the community. And so I'm so excited that the HIV Community Research Center is here because now they can chime in in case I miss anything. Um, and so we have been able to support Project 439, which is a group of guidable um, medical students that wanted to start a sort of service program here in the Upper Valley. And we were able to connect them to the HIV CD Resource Center um, and then eventually um, start up a syringe service program within Valley Regional down in Claremont. Um, and they provide free equipment. Condoms, free fentanyl and testing, or fentanyl testing kits, Narcan, free testing, um, and all of this is totally anonymous. And so, in hearing all of like the great work that's going on, and in knowing that these services are becoming more and more needed, internal departments have reached out to, to us to say, what is the feasibility of us doing this in-house for our own patients? Right, it's not an open clinic, um, and so we're working as consultants on this. And so, a couple of opportunities here. Obviously, there's um, an opportunity to support our own patients, right, by integrating these uh, services within the care that they're already getting here, right? Um, and the what we're talking about wouldn't qualify as a syringe service program in the state size, which is actually an opportunity for us because, again, it gives you the flexibility to do what you would like to do with your program targeting your own patient population. That being said, there's no funding right now in New Hampshire State to support syringe service programs yet. And I say that because um, I'm on the state opioid task force, and so we recently submitted a funding proposal to the state um, to support new and existing certain service programs in New Hampshire. Um, so this is our DH start program, support team for addiction recovery transitions. And I will preface there is a lot of information in the next three slides. Um, this has been something we've been working on for the last three years, and so I could probably do an hour presentation on this program alone. Um, so if you've got any questions, feel free to ask, because I know there might be something that I've missed in here, but it's um, a program that is just my favorite. I, I hate to be biased, but it is. I work a third of my time on it, and it's just the work we've done in the last three years is a lot, and um, I've condensed it down into three slides for you. So let's get started. So we did a pilot back in the winter and spring of 2017 where we had recovery coaches, which are peer non-clinical, peer support um, workers. So kind of like a guiding hand to someone who's looking to either access 
harm reduction or recovery. Um, and what would happen in this pilot is we had the emergency department call recovery coaches who are on call. They would present to the hospital and they would wait for the patient to consent on whether or not they wanted to speak to them. And so what would happen on the back end is the nursing staff would go to the patient and say, hey, I think this is something you can benefit from. We've got someone here who can talk to you. Would you like to talk to them? If they wanted to talk to them, they would bring them back. And if not, the recovery coach would leave. Um, and so by like summer 2017, we decided that we would go forward. And we would make this um, a formal program that population health would support. And so from summer to spring, we were planning, we were hiring, and then finally in May 2018, went live with um, an on-call model. And so we started with six on-call recovery coaches that were in on-call from Thursday to Sunday for two different shifts. There was a six, a 12 to six and a six to one, and there was one recovery coach for each shift. It gets really complicated when you've got six folks, you're only staffed a limited amount of time, and I'll get more into the challenges later too, um, but we also were missing a lot of patients, right? and so we felt that it was our due diligence to make sure that this was offered to folks that weren't coming in during the Thursday to Sunday tw uh, 12 to one. And so we implemented an after-hours referral system to make sure that we were um, capturing people that wanted to participate in the program as well. Between, I'd say, May and November, we learned a lot. And the biggest thing we learned was that the on-call model, though it works well for other programs, just did not work for us. It just wasn't sustainable. And so in January 2019, we moved forward with a one 30-hour-per-week um, position to have an in-house emergency department recovery coach. Um, Thursday to Monday from six or from twelve to six, and so those are the hours for her now. And so this just a snapshot of what we saw in the first fiscal year. Um, we had one hundred and fifty six recovery coach activations, and that's the um, the number of patients that the, the recovery coaches saw that they said yes, I would like to talk to them. To give you an idea of the comparison, so far in fiscal year twenty, we've seen two, over two hundred. Um, and so having the, the in-house recovery coach has been huge, and I'll explain a little bit more of that later. We've had 43 after-hours referrals, 92 unique patients receiving follow-up, and we had 16 Narcan consistence to patients and family. Um, and I'll just preface that as a mid-year start, we weren't able to implement all the Narcan dispensing procedures until a little over midway through the fiscal year, so like October, November. Um, but the, these were free kits that we could give to family, to friends, they weren't in order, it wasn't a prescription, we just handed them the kit and said, here you go, and it was available to them whether or not they decided to participate in the program, um, either talking to the recovery coach or meeting with follow-up. And so, for follow-up data, for this is just from January 2019, so when our recovery coach started in-house to the end of the fiscal year, and again, because of the on-call challenges, right, getting um, follow-up data, just getting any information from people that are on call became really um, difficult. So this was the best, I think, give you the idea of the follow-up data in that fiscal year. So Courtney, who's our recovery coach, had about 16 clients a month that she was providing follow-up to, and that's via text, in person, um, phone calls, however the patient um, expressed they wanted to be contacted. Um, she had 20 patients that she assisted to treatment, and she had 39 patients that were assisted to recovery services. Um, so she did a really great, a lot of work in like those six months that we were reporting the follow-up. A couple more things that might be of interest, and I'll leave these because they're so tiny on here. Um, 
So of those who consented to follow up, not including the after-hours referrals, for the most part, we're seeing a lot of males, right? So 60% male um, and 66% in that 24 to 45 age range. Um, the, and this is still true today. The majority of the cases we see are alcohol um, and then polysubstance use. We actually see, I mean, we see heroin and we see opioids and we see all that, but it's not as frequently as you think. Um, I know we went into this thinking that that's what we were going to see a lot of, and it's actually it, alcohol is the, uh, what we see very often. Um, when we started the program, we also wanted to have a measure that said, okay, what does staff satisfaction look like? And so we did an ED staff survey, which had about five questions on it, but one of the questions was, how satisfied are you with the internal resources currently available to identify and treat ED patients with substance use issues, including alcohol, opioids, et cetera? So before we started the program, we had about 17% say that they were somewhat satisfied either very or, or satisfied. And over half said they were dissatisfied or very dissatisfied. And so for us, looking at those numbers weren't surprising because that's kind of what led to the program being there in the first place. Um, but we were like, we gotta flip this. And so that's what we did, thank God. So a year later, we did the same survey and we had 60% saying they were very satisfied or satisfied with the resources internally. And only about 11% said that they were dissatisfied. So that was huge, it was a huge win very reaffirming that the program was working and um, that we were going to continue this, this program. Couple of opportunities and challenges here. So this program is truly our oyster because we don't have any funding, like from the state or federally, we're all department funded. And so when things need to change, we're able to change them however we think it's going to work best. Um, always doing this with um, Courtney's guidance, right, from her recovery coach perspective, always doing this with the ego perspective talking to patients if we can, seeing like where the areas of improvement are, um, talking to leadership. And so there's a lot of really good grades on this program that we're very grateful to have. Um, our recovery coach is a powerhouse. She's incredible. She's also a certified recovery support worker, which is a credentialing that you can get from the state of New Hampshire. Um, and she really just rolls with punches. She understands this program is evolving. She's excited to be a part of it. Um, she's very transparent. She works well with others. She's so we're very grateful to have her. Um, there are opportunities for learning from other programs. Vermont does have recovery coach programs. They do use the on-call model and it works for them, which is great. Um, but there are opportunities to do some lessons learned and we've connected with other programs and have been able to share what's worked for us and you know how we can improve the areas that we need improvement on. Um, we've been able to streamline our data collection this year. So in October 2019, we created an EDH smart form that will let us just pull um, data from the medical record. We, we still use a de-identified, um, just cumulative number spreadsheet on Google, which gets very tedious, but it allows us to have some real-time numbers to say how many activations did we see today, how many referrals did we get today, um, because I don't know if any of you have tried to pull data from EDH, sometimes it takes a while, or something get missed, and you know, so we want to make sure that we have the data that we need at our fingertips. Um, and so we have not pulled anything from it yet, um, we're waiting for the six month mark, and we're looking forward to seeing how that data looks, and hopefully it's easier than the spreadsheet, and we can just move forward with that, um, doing it that way. Um, I mentioned we do free Narcan in the ED. Again, patients, family, whoever is with them is able to get a kit as well. Um, and we're also expanding into other departments. So currently, we service uh, gastro as well as the VIT team, the behavioral intervention team. 
Um, but we do have requests from other departments um, to provide services to their patients as well. Um, this is we only have one person and she's only 30 hours a week. And so our wish list would be to add another recovery coach. And we are talking with the leadership and departments to see if there's some cost sharing that we can do. So some challenges, again, I mentioned there's no grant funding. I think FIRSA just released a rural communities grant um, recently that we're thinking could probably fit into what we need. And so we're looking to see if we can apply for that. Um, the on-call model, why did it not work for us? So we had six folks uh, hired. Some of them were full-time working you know, other jobs. Some of them were part-time working other jobs. And some of them were using this as their own <coughs> And so what happens when you have someone who's working full-time, but they're also obligated to do follow-up? They have staff meetings. They have professional development. We have all these other expectations. They have to learn how to use EDH. It just became not sustainable. And on the other spectrum, you've got folks that want to be called in, that want to see patients, but are not getting called in. And again, we can't guarantee that you know that the ED, the ED is going to be utilizing services that night, or that you're going to get called in four hours a week. It just and we were very clear about that in the beginning, and so they understood that. Um, but it just, for employee satisfaction, it was just really tough to retain these people, with rightfully so, and we, we totally understood, um, which led us to this 30-hour um, position week um, instead. Um, it's a big learning curve, and especially being a program that's housed in population health, coming into another department, building trust and building rapport with the staff is really important. And Courtney's done an excellent job of that and really integrating herself and making herself a part of not only the ED team, team now, but like gastro, and now she works with FIT. And so um, that's been, it, it, I would say, a, a challenge, but we've surpassed that, and she's done a really great job of building those relationships. Um, you have to consider the turnover in the ED, right? So you've got traveling nurses, you've got new residents, you've got new people coming on board all the time. And so making sure everyone's up to speed and knows about the program, knows how to do an after-hours referral, knows how to call, knows the limitations, right, of her scope of work. She's not clinical, um, what she can and can't do. And so Courtney is always on top of the law, making sure that if she sees someone she hasn't seen in the ED before, she's walking up to them and she's introducing herself and she's making sure that the program has a pace. Um, I did mention we have the EDH start form. It took us a year to build up. And so we had everything outlined. And so it was just a matter of the folks on the back end building it. And, and it does take a really long time. And so we didn't expect that. We thought it would be more like three months, six months. And it ended up being like a year. Um, but here we are. And we're really excited to have this now. And now it's easy for us to just say, oh, we want to add something instead of we got to rebuild this whole new build. And so that's been, that's been good now. Um, we have a consent form for the program. And so if the consent form doesn't get signed when the patient leaves, we cannot contract them because technically we're a program outside of the ED, right? And so what happens is consent forms don't get signed during after hours referral and we can't follow up with them. Um, we can have the clinicians and the nurses follow up with them and try to get them to sign a consent form. But at that point, it's really tough to get folks who are re-engaged and wanting to sign a consent form. And sometimes the staff doesn't have the capacity to call patients and say, can you get this consent form signed? And yeah, so that's a little bit of a hiccup that we run into. Um, all the follow-up we do is self-report. And so we kind of just have to take that as it is. Sometimes Courtney has been to you know meetings or if she's been to or been able to set folks up with like assessments and she knows that they landed where they were supposed to land. 
But sometimes, you know, we follow up three months later, people don't answer, or they're safe. they say, you're doing great, and then they hang up. We kind of just have to take that as it is and report, record the data the best as we can. Um, and then we do do a patient survey, and the ED is optional. And so after Courtney's done providing um, her services, she'll say, here's a tablet, totally anonymous, we don't need your information, the only person that sees the data is me. Um, and people are still really reluctant to report whether or not they felt like they received stigmatizing um, care in the ED by other people, and um, totally understand that. But we do have a couple, and so far they've been great. Um, they've reported that Courtney's you know, services were really helpful, and they're looking forward to engaging with her. Um, and so I'm glad that we have at least something that's been able to connect back to the patient. Um, because we're not in-house, right? Courtney's the only person that's there, and um, having this tablet has been really, I would say, beneficial. And the last thing is um, the DH Suicide Prevention Committee. And so DH SUNY, which is the Substance Use Mental Health Initiative, um, was commissioned by Public Health Management Council in 2015 when we, our community had um, substance use disorder or substance use prevention. It indicated it as a priority, essentially. And so we commissioned this group. And now this is still a multidisciplinary collaboration where um, folks from multiple departments will bring together other departments and other stakeholders to um, oh, not oversee, but be a part of these other projects that are going on in the system as far as substance use disorders and mental health initiatives go. And so in 2019, the Joint Commission um, set forth this mandate on hospitals that they needed to improve um, assessing suicide risk in patients. And so what SUMI ended up seeing was that there was a lot of duplicative efforts going on in the system with different trainings going on at different times, and it, it just could have been coordinated a lot better. So what they did is they brought together this um, group of subject matter experts for this prevention committee um, to work on unifying these efforts across the system um, and really support the mandate, right? And so a lot of this is coordinating what's called the Connect Suicide Prevention Training, which is a national best practice uh, suicide prevention training um, by NAMI New Hampshire. Um, and so that's what they've been tasked with doing. And so some opportunities, you know, enhancing and expanding the efforts that are going on, really unifying those efforts, making sure that we're not hosting five different trainings at the same time, and we could just be using one trainer time to provide one training to staff. Um, so they're also working on an awareness campaign that's gonna go um, across the system, so TBD on that. Um, the only challenge here is that the best practice that's set, set forth as far as suicide prevention goes for hospitals is the zero suicide prevention, or zero suicide framework. Um, but this requires a lot more manpower than what the community has right now. Um, but I do believe that Psych is um, applying for a grant that will allow us to be able to take that on um, with more manpower than we are with the suicide prevention committee. And these are just some contacts of, like, of everyone that I mentioned and that I talked about. I encourage you to reach out to them or to me or um, whoever you're feeling like you need to connect with after this. Um, totally encourage you to reach out to any of these people. They're great. Are the green um, prescription boxes, are those available all the time? 24? Mm -hmm. um, well, whenever the hospital is open, 
Yeah. But is it in the pharmacy? Is it's like, yeah, it's like right when like you round the corner in the pharmacy. And then Centera, I think it's 24-7. So yeah. Okay. Be available there. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.